Welcome to the latest edition of the Intelligent Voice podcast, uh, where we chat with interesting people that we've met over the years about all things tech, AI, and voice technology. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Julie Wall, a reader in computer science, a director of impact and innovation for the School of Architecture, Computer, Computing and Engineering, and co-director of the Centre of FinTech at the University of East London. That is the longest title I think I've ever read. Um, fabulous. Uh, the key theme of Julia's research has been the design of intelligent systems for processing and modeling temporal data, uh, with a particular interest in applications of speech and language from biologically inspired audio processing, acoustic modeling, speech enhancement, all the way through to natural language processing. Julie has experience with developing deep learning and natural language understanding systems on a variety of platforms, including virtual and augmented reality environments, and has published over 40 high quality journal and conference papers. Julie, welcome. I mean, this, this is going to be our best episode ever after, after that intro. Mm -hmm. um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm delighted, um, Julie, that you're with us today. So, um, you know, we, we have a long established uh, collaboration between uh, the University of East London and uh, Intelligent Voice, and also, Julie, you specifically and your team working with, with me and my team over the years. Uh, and I think one of the things I want to explore today is looking at academic and commercial partnerships and seeing how well they work for both sides uh, of the fence um, and maybe look at also some of the government programmes here in the UK which help sponsor some of this. Um, um, now, the purpose of this podcast is, is for me not to talk, which you will find unusual, I know, and, and for because the audience is really interested in hearing from you. Um, and one of, the, one of the things I really wanted to explore, because this is something which is, is very close to my heart, is the, is the role and, and opportunities for women in the technology sphere. And, you know, I, I suppose my first question is, you know, how did you get interested in technology to start with? You know, what was it that, that started you off on this journey? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to be part of this conversation. Um, yeah, happy to be here. I've always been interested in tech, um, like all the way back in primary school. Um, it's just always been, I've just always liked it and always liked figuring out how things work. Um, I remember we had a really old Atari that has just aged me. Um, and I used to, gosh, this is embarrassing. I used to use it to, you could write programs with the Atari. So my brothers used it to play games like normal people. And I used to turn around and use it to write programs and make colors bounce around the screen. And yeah, I, I've always enjoyed it. And I remember speaking to my um, careers guidance counselor in school. And I was just, I just knew what I wanted to do. I liked this particular course I went on, which was software development, and I've always enjoyed tech. And, and then as I went through uni, I, I just came across AI. We did an intro module to it in our final year, and I just thought it was fascinating, so exciting. It was very, um, there was no deep learning back then, so it was a, a different time. Uh, but yeah, I always enjoyed it, and I just kind of pursued that. The whole, ever since then, I've always been working in AI, and um teaching and researching in the area and so for me it's just been a an interest I've always had I guess yeah and and as as you've come through I mean would you say that um you've experienced discrimination as a woman would you say that you felt kind of alone in in the industry coming up to now I mean you know I'm it's something that I'm, I'm really keen to unpack I've always been in universities so I've been in never stepped outside that. So I, I definitely have been protect, protected in that um, area. But I have always been one of the few women in the room. Um, and it's something you are very conscious of. I think as a minority in any way, you, you, you do notice when you are the minority. And I do, you know, you can use it to your advantage, not in any, in any way, but, you know, you do stand out. So you, you may as well, if people are going to be looking at you, you may as well make them look at your work. Um, if I go to events like panels or uh, roundtables, they, <laughs> they invite women to be on panels 
um, to make it look like the tech <laughs> is not actually, you know, hugely influenced. So you get more opportunities, I think, than my my colleagues, um, my male colleagues. Um, but yeah, so very few negative experiences. I would definitely say that. Very few. Um, but it, it is something that you notice. And I guess you could let it bother you if you want to. Um, but I think everybody is a minority in some way. Um, so yeah, um, somebody else is probably having a tougher time in the same room. So I, I, I think it's more about attitude. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, the, re the reason it interests me is because clearly, you know, I run, I run a technology company and, and I've worked in technology companies for, for much of my career. And there's definitely been this kind of emphasis that, you know, all the, all the coding and a lot of the support and various things that are done by men with, yeah. with very few women involved. And, you know, all the women work in marketing. Now, that sounds like an awful thing to say, but, but you know, I've definitely noticed that. And one of the things that I've tried to promote is is trying to bring more women in um you know into my own organization and, and i know that you know over the years um you know you've placed quite a number of your your female students with us as part of, of the internship program and through yeah. phds and so on but you know i suppose and actually i i remember i did an event at my children's school a few years ago and it was careers day and this is kind of for people coming into um, into the sixth form, what they're going to study in the sixth form. And I, and I very specifically said when I went in, look, but I'm running a tech company. We're interested in getting more women in. Um, you know, we believe it's important that there's not enough women in science and technology in this country. And can you make sure that, you know, you send, you know, a, a balance of people along? And of course, what I got was all the spotty teenage boys turned up. And, you know, the person next to me, he was an actor. You know, there, I got like four spotty teenage boys and, and the actor got about 150 people coming past talking about careers in acting. So, yeah, I think that may have been a combination of not only was it only boys, it also wasn't very interesting full stop. But what what do you see we can do to help encourage more women into science and technology and particularly, you know, into computing, into what you and I do? I think by the time it gets to that stage, so when you get to the level of graduates, there, there's not, there's, it's not the responsibility of the technology sector to encourage people in because um, as universities, we try and do a lot. We work with schools. Um, so I think the responsibility is more towards holding on to women in IT, you know? Um, you know do they see that they can build a long-term career in this company, in this field, uh, in this sector? You know, can they have a career which is actually applicable to their lives and is supportive of their lives and not their lives as a 20-year-old, 25-year-old to 30-year-old, you know, their, their whole career. And if they don't see that career unfurling, then it, it's more likely that they won't stay in IT. Um, I have a I have a five year old. I think it starts at that age. And you know, when we go and buy her clothes, when we buy her curtains or duvet covers, the you know, it's princesses and fairies and pink and white. And then you look at the the boys section, and it's um, there's you know astronauts and scientists and farmers and engineers and train drivers, and it's so much more open. So. As I said, by the time they do graduate from university, it's how can you hold on to them? How can you um, offer them a career that they will want to work? So it could be around things like being mindful of company culture. Um, is it inclusive to all staff? And this will be regardless of, you know, it's regardless of gender. Um, simple things such as company social events can be, can be quite divisive. And we actually talk about that when we have international students come into the to our courses and we talk about what it's actually going to be like when you go out and do an internship and what the company culture can be like in UK and London and um, what social events and traditionally they would have been you know going for a few beers on a Thursday or setting up a five-a-side fo footy team or going to play um, paintball is it going to play yes. not necessarily things that I as a woman um, really want to do um, so I, I think that's something that the sector could look at um, looking at company working practices you know do you reward 
people who work around the clock to get the job done? Or do you, you know, is it more about, are, are people seeing you work or are you getting the job done? And if you have a flexible and kind of tolerant work environment where you can excel, you can succeed, um, then you're going to be most likely more successful than if it is an environment where it's just about working all the time and being seen to work. Um, promotion opportunities, again, are they inclusive of all staff? Do they, or do they reward the same type of people? Similar with hiring, um, are companies hiring? The, are they hiring themselves? You know, do they look at, uh, if you look around, not your company, but if companies look around their offices, is it the same person that's been hired over and over again? Um, and then a big one, of course, the, the positive one will be having, you know, role models. Um, you know, going out to speak in schools, going out, you know, as academics, we would do that. We would go out to secondary schools, we would bring primary schools in and we would talk to them and say, you know, this is the career I have. We would bring in our alumni, the, the ones who are doing really well, and bring them back to the university and say, this is where you could be in three years. Um, so having that kind of visible representation, um, that's a that's the kind of the positive one. That's one that everybody can get behind. But I do think that um, environment in the workplace is very important. And and the kind of, and the whole societal thing that sits behind it, as you're saying, from kind of ground zero, yeah. really from, from those very early ages of the messaging that we're giving to, to young girls and young women in terms of the opportunities that they, they feel they ought to be going for. The, you know, that, you know, that, you know, maybe women shouldn't be astronauts type of thing yeah which is I can I can I can see that there's there's a whole load of things in there and you know clearly you know from from where I sit all we can do really is try and encourage more women into the workforce through positive means as you say things yeah. like you know better company culture the right sort of working practices um you know we've we've always encouraged people to work flexibly you know well yeah. you know pre-pandemic um and I don't think any company is is perfect. But I think we've always, and I suppose because from my own perspective, having a wife who works and has been through exactly the same experience, going through having three children, having a wife who works, it does actually make you quite sensitive to the needs of female staff who, you know, have those pressures, you know, disproportionately placed upon them. Um, and so trying to have at least some sympathy and understanding towards yeah. uh, um, but also, actually, one of the things I did want to come on to in terms of, of kind of the, the academic collaboration piece as well, because I think one of the things that, that we found working with academia um, with, you know, we as you know, we collaborate with a number of universities, but we work very closely with you, is that it, it, we get much more exposure to a wider range of potential students who can work with us. And certainly from my perspective, the, the kind of the partnership that we've got going in terms of, of providing internships. So, you know, we provide internship, paid internships to students. Um, you know, we get, you know, we're seeing many more women and people from different backgrounds coming in through that. Uh, and maybe, you know, from your perspective and particularly maybe from a, from a UEL perspective, Maybe you can, you know, talk through where you see some of the benefits, kind of generally about academic and commercial partnerships, but maybe maybe also specifically for the types of students who um, attend UEL. Yeah. Um, so University of East London, it's based in East London, and you know we have um, a lot of our students will be first generation in the UK or first generation um, going to university and uh, we would have a lot of mature students and we have students who they have lives so they are carers their responsibility for children whether um, their parents or siblings um, they most likely have jobs to support going to university so it is fantastic that they're here and they're doing it to better their lives and their families' lives and their, you know, and they're setting an example so that when their kids, they're growing up with a, you know, with a, um, a working professional in, the, in, um, in their lives, in the family. And it makes a huge difference. Um, so if you're the first person in your family to go to university, you need a lot of support. And 
at the university we that's an that's an area that we really look um we're, we're really conscious of uh, we think it's really important to support these types of people um regardless of gender really and you know as i was saying before those company working practices they may keep um women in the sector but they're probably make the working life more enjoyable for everybody and could be potentially more productive um other thing we were thinking about was around you know the range of people coming out of universities students that we would put your way to say um you know you take a lot of our students as interns and some of them have gone on to actually and they work for you now um you know that range of a range a good range of skills is is beneficial to companies um you know technical ability is very important but there is a range of technical abilities and you know you don't have to be it's great to be a coder or be you know the best programmer ever but having a range of skills or having a range of people who all exhibit different types of skills is also very important and again it's about having that um, representation of not having the same person multiplied across all your desks um as a university again we're very conscious of our students employability and where what are they going to do next you know we're about transforming changing lives getting them from um being an undergraduate to actually having a career and that's the whole point you know we want them to have their best career give them all the opportunities and having access to companies like yours um that they can go and really experience what it's like to you know i'm learning about this but what's it actually like to work in this area it's it's huge you know it's so important um yeah yeah i mean i i would certainly encourage any company in my position to work with universities like this um you know we we've always one thing i hate is is unpaid internships i would actually i mean whilst they are they are technically illegal here in the uk now um they're still all over the place and you know i i just feel it's completely unfair on the people that you've got coming because it is a two-way exchange that's the thing you know it's they they are yes you've got people coming in and learning but they're also providing useful and valuable input into the company so you know we've always made a point of paying our interns you know at a minimum the london living wage and and higher where necessary just to you know to provide them with the opportunity to do that because you say there's a whole bunch of people out there who couldn't do an unpaid internship you know you could say you know so so you know that that's immediately self-selecting um but also you know it is it is a two-way exchange and and you know we've had some fantastic interns in over the years and you know and i've just met some really interesting people i mean you know there's people from all over the world you know um there's there's one particular person uh from nepal whose name i shan't mention on the podcast but is known to both you and i who is one of the loveliest people i've ever met in my whole life um you know and and quite you know and i've learned so much about kind of him and his background and and his culture that i would never have known before and and it's you know it's a really enriching experience bringing you know bringing young people through um and of course the older i get the younger they seem to get um as is always the way and and actually watching them improve and yeah we you know we now employ a number of people i can't remember i think we may have possibly three on the payroll at the moment um all of whom were former students uh, of yours julie um and so i i i think that that you know yes it is costing companies money to do this but actually what they get in return is is more than paid back in terms of in terms of that of the salary that they're paying and and i think it's a shame really that more companies don't you know aren't so willing to do that um and maybe what it is i mean maybe what they're doing is they're all saying well what we're going to do is we're going to go to oxford and we go to cambridge and we're going to get bristol and durham and all these places and we'll, we'll, that's how we do our selection which is a bit like what you were saying earlier about you know look at the desk to your left and right are we yeah. hiring those same people of course amazon famously had an ai algorithm which which rejected women because it was trained on all their previous hiring data yeah. so so you know it's 
it, you know, and, and in our world, you know, bias, as we know, is one of, of the true enemies of, um, of artificial intelligence and, and the type of stuff that we're doing. So, um, you know, and I would say that, you know, one of the things, again, I've really enjoyed about working uh, with UEL is it is a university which is dedicated to improving the lives of its students for, you know, on a holistic basis. And you said employability, and I think you've actually got very, very high employability stats, haven't you, compared to other universities in this area, Julie, something that, that you guys do extremely well on. Yeah, it's a, it's a big focus. It is a big focus. Um, and, you know, it is about transforming lives. That's why we're here. Um, we're here to provide people with the education, skill set, the know-how, and hopefully the experience if they can, you know, get good internships. So that when they do go into um their careers that they have every opportunity you know you have people growing up in london looking at canary wharf and thinking that's not a life for me you know it's it's maddening you know how <laughs> it's i'm very lucky i've never had that outlook and it's probably the way i've been brought up but if we can change that outlook, you know everybody <laughs> your career is really what you make of it and okay it, it may be more difficult um, for some people than others, but yeah, um, it's it's a very privileged position to be in. I think to be you know at that between students coming through and then seeing what they go on and become. And you know you you see students on LinkedIn and their jobs are amazing. You know <laughs> of a lot of them and all of them. And um, you know, you, you don't do academia to make money, um, but you see students make a lot of money, and hmm. <laughs> um, but it's it's brilliant. Yeah, it's it's a really it's a good feeling. No, I bet, I bet. Well, because you're right. Because I mean, so I you know I've got a particular affinity with UEL because I grew up in Romford, so down the uh, down the A13 and turn left, and um, my my grandma used to live in Bethnal Green. And it's where my mother grew up. And so we used to drive up past um, where the university is. And back in those days, Beckton was a slag heap. I mean, it was a literal slag heap uh, from the coking works. And all of that dockside was derelict. And, you know, to see a university rise out of that, for me, is an amazing thing. And, and to know as well that, yeah, there's like this kind of invisible force field that so many people from, from East London kind of looking at the city and all of that, it was like a, it, yeah, like a force field almost for a lot yeah. of people. Again, I, I was very lucky. I came from, uh, from a privileged background that meant that I was, you know, I didn't feel that same problem, but I saw a lot of people around me who did. So, you know, again, one of the reasons why I'm, you know, fully supportive of, of what you guys do specifically, and I'm not going down so well, Cambridge, Oxford, Durham, Bristol, MIT, you know, whatever it might be, is because I think that, you know, your students are, you know, actually some of the brightest people. I mean, some of them are some of the brightest people I've ever met, and, and they're a real privilege to work with. So, but please don't tell any of them that. Because, um, so <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't want, we wouldn't want that. But they're very driven. And yeah. it, it is illogical to think that top talent can only be confined to a handful of schools or universities. It, it doesn't make sense. And we have, you know, you know, for companies to look at the universities they have on their doorsteps, you know, there's so many bright people who are just itching for a chance and they don't have uncle or aunt or mom or dad who can, you know, who are already in those areas and they're working and they have those careers um so they you know they really have that passion um mm -hmm. so, yeah. yeah well let's talk about then some of the fun stuff they can do as well because i think this is the other thing is is you know let, let's you know some of the some of the because because i think that some of the things that we've worked on over the last few years are you know genuinely world leading and these are all things which have, have had the involvement of students you know yeah. from from UEL you know these are you know from those same driven motivated passionate students who don't have um the the top university on their cv and yet have achieved amazing things um nice. and and also i think the other thing that i want to i want to look at julie is is the help that um the uk government has provided over the years as well with some of these things because again one of the issues of 
of, of academia and the commercial world is at the end of the day, whenever you're doing research, someone's got to pay for it. You know, it's not, you know, research does not, you know, these clever things that people think up just don't come out of the ether. Um, you know, at the end of the day, someone's got to pay for it. And, you know, a number of the projects, and, and we'll go down them in a second, that you and I have been involved in have been part funded through government schemes and certainly have allowed um, my company to participate because whilst we have to provide funding, we don't have to provide all of it. And again, on the yeah. university side, provides funding for you guys to provide the talent um, to do this. Um, and I've got, I've got a little list here of some of the things that, that you and I have done over the years. And, and well, I'll tell you what, why don't you tell me, what is, what is the most interesting project that, that um, we've collaborated on over the last few years? I think when you look at where we started, so we started working together in 2015. Um, we published our first paper together in 2016, and that was where we started on speech enhancement. Um, and we've come a long way since then. We've, I think we've, I actually had a look. We've published over 20 papers together in the last, wow, like five, six years. Um, and it's always been around that speech piece. Um, so, you know, the team here at UEL, we've have you know, we've got staff and students who are just really strong on deep learning, um, machine learning, data science, data analysis. I've always been interested in speech and audio. Bible, primarily I've been interested in, like, I love collaborating with IV because I love real world research. Um, I've never really been into that kind of blue sky theory, theoretical, um, real research. Um, I just, I, what we call, what we now call knowledge exchange, that's kind of where my passion is. So, you know, well, it's funny because when we teach students like machine learning, we have to give them problems that are solvable. Otherwise, how can we actually assess them? And how can we say, well done, you know, here's your degree. But it's not that simple it's actually not like that at all I guess when you're solving these problems in the real world and that's interesting to me um, you know how do we move beyond algorithms and models and say well how, how would these actually fare up if we pass them over to a company and said well run this and most of the academic most of academic research that we've tried um, let me be kind <laughs> fare up um, you know it's they're great models they're approximations the, the algorithms are cutting edge, but when you give them real data, real speech, you know, accents like mine, um, they, they just they just don't know what to do with it. And I think that's the interesting piece. That's the bit that excites me. And um, we've had, you know, really interesting projects around that. You know, we've developed fraud, fraud, fraud prevention, sorry, I can't speak now, fraud prevention decision support software around um looking at how people are saying things and what they're saying um i guess that's my that's what i think is exciting um that knowledge exchange around how we do research in universities but that kind of relationship and that collaboration with industry that's that's interesting to me so so just yet yeah, step stepping outside the the kind of ivory tower of uh, of academia as it were and um, and actually going out and solving real world problems things so I mean I'm just I'm just looking down at some of the things that that we've we've done so one of the you, you touched on fraud prevention there I mean you know let don't don't be don't be modest about this one Julie I mean we we pitched um, to innovate UK a mm -hmm. completely new way of doing fraud prevention and a completely new way of looking at explainability when and I remember you and I sat in that pitch in that yeah. funny little round tower in in London and we were talking about explainable AI now we were doing that long before it became a buzzword that's yeah. the thing you know and and so you know your your team helped develop some of the the really early explainable models in AI, how do you get a, a machine 
to tell you why it reached the conclusion it did. Now, this stuff is all enshrined in law now. This is all GDPR and all this type of stuff. But, you know, and, and I can remember some of the reviewers kind of staring at us saying, you know, are you really sure this is necessary? You know, it, it, you re can't just build a big model and it'll sort itself out. And, you know, some of, some of the ideas that your team took in there in terms of, you know, we yeah. were looking at things like having hyper-specialized models which because they were hyper-specialized meant it was really easy to get them to turn around on themselves and say, this is the reason I took the decision that I did. As opposed to, um, you know, I, I've, I have a real bugbear at the moment. So the world is, is, is talking about, um, or certainly our world anyway, is talking about this thing called NLP, natural language processing, where you try and understand what humans are saying. So maybe you're summarizing what they're saying, you're doing translation, you're answering questions. And, and a lot of this technology we use in, in the projects that we collaborate on. So we use um, text-based systems as well as acoustic-based systems. But the systems that we've built over the years are things which are, are specialized, they're fast, and they're very explainable. But there's a big move in the marketplace to just making bigger and bigger and bigger models. So, you know, we hear about GPT-3, we hear about Megatron 560 and all of these things. And um, do you feel, um, I'm going to bring you back to some of our products in a second, but it's just a question that appeals to me. Um, is, I mean, do, do you feel that a lot of that is just grandstanding and that actually and, and this probably sounds like a very leading question, doesn't it? Do you think it's grandstanding? Um, so yes, um, no, but do no, but but do you? I mean, where do you think we should be going with these things? Is it should should all of the models in the world be owned by you know five companies, basically three of them in America and two of them in Japan, in China? Um, you know, what 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 should we be looking at in this field of NLP? I think. People do get carried away with the latest model, the you know, the next bird. And okay, they're they are enhancing things, they run faster, they're more efficient, they increase the state of the art by 0.06 or 0.7. And they're not really, I, I think the, the underlying problem is still there. And that's about for every individual problem you try to solve. Do you, can you actually solve that problem with the data that you have? And if, you know, if when we're teaching machine learning or when I'm working with my team and we're looking at trying to build a model, changing the model, like it generally never helps. Um, adding more layers to the model adds, helps a little bit. Um, changing the learning rate, okay, these are all parameters that you have for the model. What's important is more data, better quality data, building in processes for how to deal with noisy data, missing data, biased data. I, I think it always comes back to the data. And for I'm always keen to find out about the next model and definitely try it out and see, well, does it help? Does it work better? But if you don't have the resources, which is the data to actually solve the problem in the first place, no model is going to solve it for you. And that's, I think there's a, a really interesting theoretical piece of work to do, which is looking at a data set and actually being able to compute what can actually be done with it. Whereas we kind of do it the opposite way. We take a model and we, we train it and we, we evaluate it and we go, well, we got this accuracy or this set one score. But is there scope in that data to get more out of it? I think that's kind of a, that's interesting. So I, I guess the answer to your original question is, Yes, I think there's more importance and more fanfare around the models than necessarily around how they're used, how they're employed, and what's the actual problems that we're trying to solve. Um, people talk a lot about natural language processing, and it's text processing that they're doing. And, yeah. um, you know, there's a big gap between speech and audio and text processing. And that gap is around, you know, Who's speaking? Um, are they speaking fast? Are they speaking slow? Um, what accent do they have? Are they, you know, using slang? Are they using um, rather, you know, it's 
that's the interesting bit. And I think that's where the problems still are. And the technology is, yeah, it's never, it's kind of a step behind that, I think. Yeah, and, and in a sense that does point to the kind of the, the bias in data issue is that, again, it almost becomes self-selecting because there's a small amount of data um, all of the models are trained to make that data appear better, work better with that data, yeah. as opposed to taking a step back and saying, what are the data sets that we need? And, and I think you would agree that one of one of the biggest challenges on working on any of these um, yeah. projects is obtaining the right sort of data and then cleansing it and, uh, you know, and, and actually making sure that it's not biased, it's it's balanced it's it addressing the right problem it's in the right languages um you know there, there's a whole there's a whole kind of theory around the fact that you know most of this data is gathered by by young white men and so therefore you know all of the answers are geared towards young white men it's an oversimplification but you know i think quite often the the data reflects the attitude of the of the person gathering it in the first yeah. place and in some yes. ways yeah no no go ahead yeah, I, I guess we're, we're, as a field, we're putting a lot of limitations on ourselves. So all the big models are freely available, but the data is not. Mm. Um, you know, we're doing a big push in academia towards open, open publishing, open access, because papers are behind paywalls. Um, you know, how much further advanced could we actually be if we, if we actually had access to everything? Um, so I, I, there is a limitation, and um, for me, the data is the most important thing. And as an academic, as a poor academic, it is expensive, or you just don't get it at all, and you're left with these publicly available data sets, which are great to teach on. You know, teach the concepts, but they're very difficult to actually do state-of-the-art, cutting-edge research because <laughs> they're what you know. There's there's very little scope for what you can do with them beyond what's already been done. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and when we've worked together, that data piece was what we thought was going to be a, a small part of the project turned out to be <laughs> um, the most important thing, really. And it instead of being in, you know, requirement specification, let's do data capture and data prep in the first quarter, it never ended. And I think we're still doing it in the project yeah. last year. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And we have a team of people who, whose job it is just to go through and analyze and sift and and, and find more data. Yeah. So, I mean, would, would you like to see then, that's another leading question, but would, would you like to see perhaps more government or European funding across building out standardized data sets, things which were more readily available um, or, or at least even getting let's say for government funded projects that the date that there was a requirement to gather data and then share it because that data had been publicly funded would, would that be perhaps part of the answer to the problem i think there has to be something there has to be something done in this area um if you're going to get government funding to do a project which is going to if it's a knowledge exchange project or it's in the funding is going to a company and they're going to do better as a company because of that funding. I can see why they will be reluctant to share the data. I can definitely see that. You know, they have to survive, they have to compete. Um, but it, then the government funding is being used to fund another project, and then they have to source their data. And then, so there's a huge amount of resources most likely being wasted because the underlying data is not actually being shared. Um, and maybe there should be a percentage of data that's shared or it's, it's a conversation that's happening, you know, um, in government around, say, like fintech and AI and, you know, how companies should be sharing data and government has a lot of data. Um, but it's, it's still a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And it's certainly one that, um, well, maybe something that we can... Um we can pick up when we're at the Houses, uh, Houses of Parliament shortly, because one of the things I did really want to talk about, Julie, as well, is the uh, the launch of the uh, of the new centre of, of fintech and law, which um, I think, for those of you who remember all the way back to the very beginning, in that very long title, um, that, uh, that Julie is the co-director of the Centre of Fintech at UEL. 
Uh, and maybe you can just tell us a little bit, Julie, about what, what the Centre of FinTech is, is set up to do and, and what you hope to achieve. It's this really fantastic new initiative at the university. And we first started talking about it, I think it was pre-pandemic, or else it was very early in 2020. Um, so, you know, traditionally, universities, like lots of other institutions, we end up being silos. So everybody's working in their own office, in their own area. We started speaking to our colleagues in the um, Royal Dock School of Business and Law. So our school is around computing and engineering and architecture, and their school is around finance, law, business, marketing. And we looked at the, started speaking around the topic of fintech. Uh, wouldn't it be really interesting to gather together experts across the schools who actually support all of the areas of fintech? So financial regulation, um, finance, law, and technology. And we have all the expertise at the university. And so we, we've grouped together and we spent, you know, the last year talking about it and we're officially formally launching um, tomorrow at the House of Parliament. And we wanted to go a step further. We didn't want to be another university research centre who talks to other academics. And we have reached out to companies such as yourselves, Intelligent Voice, very pleased to have on our um, external advisory board yourself, Nigel. Um, and we, we've invited companies to be, become involved with that. And so what do we really want to do? Well, we want to be a hub for fintech research. So if you're interested in the technology side and financial, the regulatory, you know, we have that expertise and we have it all in one place now. Um, we uh, want to be a talent pipeline again at the university for fintech education. We were the first university to do MBAs in fintech. Um, there was no direct pipeline from students who were interested in fintech and actually a university degree that will get you there. You could do degrees in business, you could do degrees in law, you could do degrees in postgraduate degrees in um, technology, computer science. Well, we didn't have that fintech and we've been working on that for the last couple of years across our computing degrees and our business degrees to actually bring in that fintech flavor um, and a lot of that has been around working with companies like yours to find out well, what do you actually need what skill sets do you need um, so yeah i'm really excited about this new center of fintech yeah, well, I mean, it sounds absolutely fascinating. And I understand as well that there are facilities like things like mock courtrooms and a yes. and, and a and a genuine fake trading floor as well, yeah. I heard, which I think is fascinating. It's, it's it is. Some, you know, something which most students would never get the opportunity to experience unless they were lucky enough to get an internship with a, you know, with a law firm or a, yeah. or a large um, or a large trading house. So I mean, that, that sounds like, an, I mean, a lot of thought, it seems to me, and money by the sounds of it, has gone into the centre. It's not just a, a kind of a brass plate initiative. It's something which is really fully thought through and, and really fully supported by the university. Yeah, we've, I think maybe the pandemic has given, okay, it's been really busy for academia because we have to, we had to support our students in a new way and everybody just had to transform overnight and become you know, online teachers. and But it also gave us time to think about our learning spaces and having labs row upon row of computers. Um, is that the best way for students to learn? So we've, we've, we've taken a step back as a university and looked at our campuses and thought, what do they actually need? So you're right, within business and law, they have a mock courtroom, it's fantastic. And, um, you know, if you're actually debating and practicing speeches in that space you actually all it's, it's like doing internships you feel you have an understanding of what it's going to be like in computing we we still have the rows and rows of machines but we thought about well what about those kind of places and they're not just for students to have lunch but it's let's bring them together and have them working together collaboratively talking generating ideas thinking about limitations um you know if you're going to go and work in a company, you need to be able to, to talk, to, you know, explain your idea. Um, so that's, an, that's a piece that we, is very important to us, is that learning spaces and how, how can we best support our students um, in their learning and 
this kind of physical way seems to be really popular and is it's quite successful. Yeah, but do you see that maybe there's also a, um, a kind of a, a place for virtual reality and mixed reality, that type of thing in, in this type of teaching? And that wasn't a leading question at all. Isn't it interesting that we have been working on a KGP project in that area? <laughs> um, yes, I think AR and VR is going to be very beneficial to education. Um, you know, it, 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 they talk about the metaverse and, you know, I don't think we're there yet, but there is a, it is a learning resource and it, it's just, that can only enhance teaching. Uh, we've been um, investigating in our school about how we can use um, AR and VR within our subjects. Um, we were like, you know, does computer science need AR or VR? Maybe not, but if you're teaching a really graphical subject or a creative subject like interior design or architecture, it can be hugely impactful to have that sort of technology supporting the teaching of those subjects, definitely. Yeah, and, and just, just for a, an acronym you used a few seconds ago, um, KTP project, yeah. um, the, the knowledge transfer partnership is actually at the very core of a lot of um, kind of academic and commercial collaboration. It's government, it's UK government project, it's been around for about 50 years now, I think, yeah, hasn't it? Yeah, it has, yeah. And, and which is incredible when you think how it's morphed from what was clearly something which was very much uh, vocational in probably, you know, making banging bits of leather together or something like that, to something where now um, the government supports a, a, a project over a three-year period usually, whereby a someone is employed by the university and actually is embedded within a company and not only kind of helps build a project. So in this case, we built a, a, a mixed and virtual reality meeting room um, which still astonishes me at how incredible. So anyone who's watching us in 2D, um, if you, you were using the mixed reality meeting room, you'd be able to do it in 3D. You'd be able to put people on the desk. You'd be able to hold up your iPhone and see them. I've got my Oculus Quest over here somewhere, you know, million different ways. Um, you know, which, but it, that enabled the, the student who was involved in it, not only to, to improve their coding skills, but also they're sent on courses by the government to help with things like presentation, yeah. um, you know, to turn someone into a, into a fully rounded business individual. Um, and, and so actually, you know, secretly, I was hoping you'd say that was your favorite project because that was my favorite project. But um, we've all had, um, I think the, you know, we, we've done we've done some really kind of cool stuff together. I mean, speech enhancement as well, um, the industrial PhD idea. So sponsoring a PhD student um, over you know a three year period during the course of doing the PhD again is another form of of academic and commercial collaboration, um, and and we've seen some fantastic results coming from that in in the work that we've done with you. I mean, what, what, I mean, two questions I've got for you, Julie, in conclusion, um, really. So, and, and they're both about kind of pieces of advice that you would give to people. So one is um, a piece of advice for um, any student coming into, into the, the kind of AI, computing and AI arena at the moment. You know, what, what would you say to that person who was about to step into it and also on the other side if you could sit down with any uh any mid-sized british tech company at the moment what would you want to say to them about working with academia uh and, and working with the types of students that you have and then i promise there's no more questions after that i would say i've been asked this before what advice would i give um, students and you know when you say that you love the KTV project I love I would have loved to I think I would have loved to be in a KTV associate I think it's um, if anybody ever has the opportunity to go and do a project like that definitely do it um, the advice I would give is okay you, ha you have to work you know this this is a career it's a job you have to work it if you're interested in in that subject then it's 
it's, you know, it's going to make it much more rewarding. Um, if you're already at that stage where you're working in and you're thinking about moving into machine learning or AI, you know, you're generally an intelligent person. Most people are. And it's all, I think it's all about opportunities, saying yes to every opportunity. Um, it, it is a mindset and an attitude um, and saying no to things. Generally, opportunities stop coming your way. Um, so whether you're a 22 year old graduate or you're um, a 40 year old like me, I think it's just keep saying yes, um, keep being excited by what you're doing. Um, it could be a very long career if you don't find it interesting. Mm. Uh, work well with other people. That's just as important. And yeah, be a professional, you know, be somebody that people want to work with. People want to work with you again. Um, that's, it's a lot of advice, but it's, you know, your career is what you make of it. it. It really is. And unless you're very lucky and things are handed to you, most people will work to get opportunities. But if you work hard, people will recognize that and it, it, it will help you in the long run. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and and to, a, to a company, to a mid-sized company, what do you want to say to all those mid-sized or even large technology companies out there in the UK, Judy? What's your, your final message for them? I think it's very important to be open to seeding early stage research. And one of the best ways you can do that is working with academia, uh, working with universities. You can have access to, you know, you can have people working like PhD students or internships. Uh, it, is, it doesn't have to be hugely expensive. You know, it's not like hiring a data scientist, put it that way. Um, and you can have projects running in the background around kind of new areas of technology that are of interest to the company. And you can get your staff to kind of get involved in those projects and be mentors. Um, you've got academics with their expertise, you know, on your doorstep who are ready to pitch in and help. Um, you know, there's so much funding available, you know, the, the government really encourages this type of research between companies and academia. Um, <clears throat> and it's so beneficial. It's beneficial to companies, it's beneficial to academics like myself, um, but it's hugely beneficial to, you know, the next generation, the pipeline of talent who are coming through. Who's going to be working in your company next year, in five years, in 10 years? If you're not really supporting that graduate level, whether it's graduate level research, postgraduate research, supporting universities, um, I think I, if you are involved in that, you're kind of at the top of the queue to get the best talent. Um, so I think it's it's just it can be very beneficial, and you know, building long term relationships. They don't have to start with an, you know a, a big large grant bid. It could start small, you know, um, speak to your to an academic that, you know, talk to your local university and they will send you good quality students who are just keen and want to learn and probably have really good ideas and probably have really good ideas around technology. Um, yeah, so just be open minded, I guess. Fantastic. Well, look, Julie, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And thank you ever so much for, for taking an hour of your time to speak with us today. Um, to the rest of the audience, many thanks for joining us again. Um, and look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the Intelligent Voice podcast. Thanks very much.